0: And speaking of festive things, Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Why don't you open your Bible, and then I've got a reader this morning. Don, if you want to head on up.
1: Good morning. I'll I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, Ecclesiastes 1, verses 12 to 18. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow.
0: You can smile. I want you to imagine uh, three individuals, three men, walking into a bar where they're seated together around a small circular table. The first man, clearly younger than the other two, he speaks up first as he swirls his glass of fine wine. His tone is firm, and he puts off an air of confidence, a confidence that seems to pair well with his three-piece suit and the gold cufflinks to go with it. And as you listen to him talk about the meaning of life and, and how to milk the most out of it... You can't help but notice that he constantly is is name-dropping the Ivy League college that he attended to receive his law degree. You realize as a spectator watching from the table next to theirs that this man seems to have an answer for absolutely everything, and he isn't short on any opinion or on self-assurance on how to precisely work the system to get what you want from life. You catch yourself even kind of rolling your eyes at him because he fits the stereotype of the type A control freak so very well. But then there's a the second man that you, you look towards, and he, he looks in his dress nothing like his friend, although he often, you hear him speaking up and joking between sips of his cheap beer about how much he saw his younger self in that younger friend at the table, in that self-confident young lawyer. You quickly surmise, though, while listening intently, that his career was spent on Wall Street. That is until unforeseen circumstances outside of his his own control, a storm, you might call it, caused the system he once trusted to collapse completely. His career was over, his business folded, his family was lost, and his house was now occupied by someone else. But you listen as that man pushes back on the young lawyer, on the self-assured one, telling him it's not always as simple or fair or able to be controlled as you're suggesting that it is because as he reminds his young friend we live in a flawed and unpredictable system and he uses his own life as an example of that as you're watching this all play out you then realize that that third individual seated at the table he hasn't even looked up from his glass of straight hard liquor It's a single ice cube was all the garnish he needed in his cup. And as he finally lifts his head, you see he's haggard. He's got dark circles under his eyes and they pair perfectly with his unkept hair and a shirt collar that's halfway pushed up and a shaky tone that seemed to work harmoniously together to express the man's utter bewilderment. I mean, long before you've leaned in close enough to even hear his words, you're certain that life has taken its toll on this man. But then you catch a single sentence, and you hear him say, it's all empty and broken, vanity and unfulfilling. Life is never as simple as you think it to be. You might already be suspicious of my little story about the three men walking into a bar. You're probably disappointed first that it wasn't a joke, but... The second thing is you're probably suspect because you realize these are not merely three mysterious friends. Really, this is the wisdom literature of the Hebrew Scriptures. This is the Proverbs, the the self-assured, as well as refined and prosperous, maybe even seemingly a bit naive in moments to real life, the real life that us common people seem to deal with. There's the lawyer seated there. And then there's Job, the one who, yes, saw much of his younger self in that one, before his life experience in tragedy robbed him of his blissful ignorance. But then there's Ecclesiastes brooding over his strong drink. He's the friend you grew up with who, when he came back from war and seen live combat, you found that he had no more time left or patience at all for fashion trends or shopping malls or, or consumerism in any form or even our naive idealism that comes paired like a fashion accessory from a sheltered life that's void of hardship or suffering, like someone like he has seen. They together sit at a circular table, those three voices never contradicting one another. Instead, when seated together, they form a single voice, which tell us from the Hebrew scriptures, from the wisdom literature of the ancient Old Testament, they tell us the keys to the good life. Now it's really not fair, and you're probably already thinking this. For me to refer as the Proverbs as being naive, it's not fair at all. Because after all, God's the one who inspired the writing of the Proverbs, and it is wisdom that will serve you well, and it will probably save you from unnecessary heartache and struggle. From my own foolish foolishness, that that would my foolish decisions would bring problems my way. It would save me from that if I'd listen to and live in the Proverbs. But think of this, the Proverbs are only naive if they're read and understood and counted on as your foolproof plan for an easy life, for the path of least resistance in life under the sun. That would be naive because the Proverbs themselves make it clear that there are exceptions to the rule. You know, I, I one of my least favorite pastimes right now in my life is the evening homework job. <laughs> it's sitting with my children having to relearn things that I'd learned before. I mean, you, you forget some of the things you learn in school, especially, it's amazing, some of the math stuff that I just had to know growing up, that I'm like, I am an adult who's in 20 plus years, never, lear- never used any of what I worked so hard to learn, and I'm learning it again. It's a real joy and a gift in life, I tell you. <laughs> Do you remember, though, the rule that we learned in grammar? They called it a rule, the grammatical rule of I before E. Right, except there's exceptions, right? I before E, and you feel like as long as I've got that down, then I'm going to excel in grammar, until they tell you, well, except after C. Or sometimes when sounding as A, as in neighbor or way, and in weird, which is both odd and exceptionally ironic that weird would also be an exception to the rule. The the whole thing is very, very odd for us. There's a rule, but we know right from the get-go that there are exceptions to the rule. And the Proverbs do self-report their own shortcomings and limitations. And because many of us approach the Proverbs, mistakenly reading them as promises rather than Proverbs, we typically choke on these caveats and question, are these contradictions? Uh, Miss Ruth will throw one on the screen for you to view. It's from Proverbs 26. Where it says, do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like him. The very next verse says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Now, how many of us have read through the Proverbs and got to this point and thought there is clearly a contradiction and a problem here? Because if you're viewing these as promises and not as Proverbs then all of a sudden it feels like a contradiction. But if these are Proverbs that are telling you best practice and rule of thumb statements and instructions on saving yourself from unnecessary pain, from my own stupidity and self-centeredness, well then in some situations it's true that, that the wise best response is not to engage or respond to a fool's foolishness or their comments or their accusations, lest you look as childish as they do by engaging with them. And yet in other situations, the wise response is to show the fool just how foolish his thinking or comments or accusations or ideals really are, lest he continue to be a fool. So the translation of these two verses together is really that sometimes people are just dumb and foolish, and you can't get around it, and they can be really difficult to deal with. And just know, not all situations or people are going to need to be responded the same way. It's going to be difficult. It'll be tricky. You see, the, the Proverbs self-report these caveats. One scholar wrote, the wisdom literature needs Ecclesiastes then in order to keep us from trusting ourselves to trite formulas under the sun. Hear me please, Proverbs doesn't completely ignore the exceptions. It's that Proverbs rarely though highlights them, whereas Ecclesiastes won't let you look away from them. You turn your head and he grabs you by the jaw and pushes you back in the direction you don't want to look. In fact, at the end of it, if you want to flip all the way forward to chapter 12, the final verses, where at the end of Ecclesiastes, the preacher says that these words are like goads. They poke at you to drive you in the right direction. And then in the final statement, the final verse of the book of Ecclesiastes, he says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Do you notice that at the end of his writings, he's really affirming that a life lived in reverence to God and with an eye fixed on eternity is the best life to live, which is precisely what the Proverbs tell you throughout. Remember in Ecclesiastes, there's technically two voices. There's the author who's penning this, and there's the preacher. The author believes that you need to hear the preacher, and the preacher believes you need your bubble burst, as I quoted you last week from a modern scholar writing about Ecclesiastes, he said, The book of Ecclesiastes is not positive. It actually has a negative role in the Bible. The book of Ecclesiastes is essentially time to deconstruct everything that you thought you knew about life and the world and to reduce you to your knees by the end so that the good news can, in fact, become good news. I love it. Or stated this way Philosopher or philosophy professor Peter. Peter Kreeft said that Ecclesiastes is the question to which Christ is the answer. You know, just as we found in our series in Galatians that the law set the stage for grace, what we find is that a life in a broken world paves the way for Jesus to arrive and sweep us off our feet. The right of Ecclesiastes is determined to show us just how broken life is beneath the sun in order to highlight for us as the story of the Bible continues to show us a greater preacher who comes from the line of David, a king and a preacher. His name is Jesus. You see, the goal of this book is not to depress you. It's to free you. It's not to depress you. It's to free you. You see, this whole book is a man's journey to discover the meaning of life. Or as we said last week, he's trying to figure out what makes for the good life. He starts in chapter one, verse three, where he says, what profit does a man have from all of his labor in which he toils under the sun? What does a person profit or gain? Or what do you have to show for at the end of your life, all of your life and all of your effort? What do you have to show for it when a grave is there to greet us all and that all we have worked for is unable to be experienced or enjoyed any longer? You remember, the voice of Ecclesiastes is assuming that all that is seen is all that there is. He refers to that mentality as life under the sun. It's his way of describing a life that is lived, believing that there is nothing beyond it, with the belief that there's nothing above the sun. That's the idea. As author Tim Chaddick wrote, he said, the preacher adopts the perspective of a secular. Secularist, not necessarily denying God's existence, but trying to make sense of life as though God were optional. And the preacher now takes us on a journey through his own life experiences, a life that was lived seemingly without restraint and seemingly without a thought for eternity. And that is also who he believes himself to be addressing, not people who don't believe in God necessarily. It's people who live without thinking that he's very important, though. And that describes perfectly modern man, doesn't it? So we ask the question today, what makes for the good life? The truth is, for many of us, we would answer that question in our own experience under the sun in a broken world. We live and believe that if only I had more wisdom, well, then I'd be satisfied. If I had more wisdom, then all of this around me would begin to make sense and would feel satisfactory. And the preacher will be for us, a spokesman and a figurehead who today yells back at us and says, "Your wisdom." No, it won't. It won't do for you what you hoped it will do. Wisdom cannot provide, human wisdom will not provide the answers to the brokenness of our world or the tension that exists in your heart. In verse 13, he starts it by saying, and I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. This is a burdensome task God has given to the sons of man by which they may be exercised. The NIV, it says, I've applied my mind to study and explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. He's telling you, I'm trying to figure all of this out. And what did he discover? Here's how he finishes in the NIV. He says, what a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. The NASB, it is a sorry task that God has given to the sons of mankind. The New Living Translation, his wisdom, what did he say? God has dealt a tragic existence on human race. Amplified Bible, it is a miserable business and a burdensome task which God has given the sons of men with which to be busy and distressed. The preacher's telling you that the end of his search for answers, utilizing human wisdom, remember, with the mentality of that all that is seen is all that there is. This is life under the sun. There's nothing beyond this life. There's nothing above the sun. In his human wisdom, all that he found, he says, was deeply disturbing. In fact, by the end of his search, he said in verse 18, it finishes the section where he says, For in much wisdom is much grief. And he who increases in knowledge increases sorrow. He tells you that the more he knew, the more sorrowful and depressing it was. And the more he looked at it, looked at reality, the more grievous and painful it was. Now take a deep breath because we're going to try to dive into and explore what he means by that. Purely through human wisdom, why is it the more wise and the more you look at the reality of life under the sun, if there's nothing beyond this, why would it leave a person so very empty? Friedrich Nietzsche, the German philosopher and cultural critic and well-known antagonistic individual of Christianity, is perhaps most well-known for a stunning claim he made about God in the late 1800s, where Nietzsche said, God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. He would later claim that the meaning of life is simple, that you alone can give meaning to life, so he said, so go find meaning. He was making it clear that he did not believe in any form of transcendence, but that every person would have to seek out for themselves a way to find meaning in life. It would be the same man, though, who later in his life would pen these words. He wrote, and I quote, that if you stare into the abyss long enough, the abyss stares back at you. Remember his claim, God is dead and we've killed him and he's not coming back. And then he said, when I stared into the abyss long enough, I found that it stared back at me. You see, an abyss is a bottomless pit. It's an empty void, which is exactly what Nietzsche claimed our existence to be void of a meaningful origin and void of a meaningful future, which leaves you then to grapple and grasp with, can my present existence then be anything different from that? Can it be anything different from my meaningless origin and my meaningless future? Does that mean that my life is also meaningless? That is the abyss that he had to stare into, and that is the one he said stared back at him. It was haunting for him. Another way of saying this is that if nothing lasts and even we don't last, then what's the point of it all? Or if my origin is meaningless and and my future is meaningless, then how is my life anything other than meaningless? This is what the preacher, the man with the message for the whole assembly of humanity, the writer of Ecclesiastes here, this is what he's wrestling with. He's using wisdom under the sun to try to answer life's biggest questions. Remember, under the sun, that all that is seen is all that there is. Living your life with merely a horizontal perspective, a life without taking God and eternity into account at all. The mentality leaves my origin, our origin collectively as humanity, as having then no intention and therefore no meaning. We're the product of dumb luck and random chance, just an explosion and the perfect amount of luck, some wind, rain, time, and erosion, and then all of a sudden we're here. Just a clump of senseless cells clustered together. Lifeless goo emerging through the zoo becoming me and you. That's what we believe, right? That's what life under the sun, if there's no transcendence, nothing above this, nothing beyond this, then this is how we got here. Our origin has no meaning. Listen, this is the thought where he said, and if I stared into this long enough, it stared back at me. Or the words of the preacher who said, I applied my mind to study and explore by human wisdom all that is done under the heavens. Remember, he's telling you, I'm trying to figure this out. And what did he discover? He said, what a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I mean, look around today at our modern society. This under-the-sun mentality is the, the prevailing line of thinking that all that we see is all that there is and that there's nothing beyond it. The problem is if you go to someone who thinks that way and you just begin to ask them a question, and and maybe you think this way, and someone, maybe probably your mother dragged you here today, but if you think this way, then be challenged by this. What is your why? Why do we exist then? What's our reason for existing? Why are we here? Why do you exist? Why do you get out of bed in the morning? Well, maybe you'd say, well, to make the world a better place. But where does your sense of morality or better come from? What is virtue and who gets to define it? Because what's true for you is good for you, but it might not be true for me because there's nothing transcendent in an under-the-sun mentality and worldview. And what our modern society is telling us is, don't you dare stuff your, sensy, uh, your, your stuffy sense of purpose or nobility on me in an era of moral relevance. You can. That's true for me. It might be true for you. Oh, well, then what's your why? Well, well, my why is I need to preserve the planet. And I don't want you to misunderstand me. If the planet is given to us to steward, and if God told us to do that very thing in the book of Genesis, then we should care about the planet. But with an under-the-sun mentality and worldview, then there is no God, and therefore no request to steward what he entrusted to us. Think of it this way. Let's say that there's an airplane crash that takes place later this week here locally. A plane at 35,000 feet falls from the sky. And what they find in the wreckage is the, the, the coveted black box. It has the recordings of the transcript of the audio of, of the captain in, in his cockpit speaking. And what you begin discover to discover as you listen to it play back you hear that the engine blew at just over 30,000 feet and that the plane was quickly in a nosedive, headed straight towards a 10,000-foot-tall mountain. And you could hear the captain grabbing the microphone and beginning to plead with people that if you just sit down, please, and buckle your seatbelt, then I might be able to stabilize the plane just enough to narrowly miss the mountain while we nosedive, plummeting towards the ground. But you know whether they hit the mountain or, or whether they hit the ground at sea level, you know that they're free-falling nose down. Now, if you heard the playback, would someone rightly say, well, what a tragedy that people didn't listen and sit down and buckle up in order for him to veer the plane so that they didn't hit the mountain and 10,000 feet below they hit the ground instead? What a tragedy, a grand tragedy. Well, no, that's not the tragedy that they didn't missed the mountain. The tragedy is that it crashed at all. Think about this though. Scientists around the globe are united in telling us, hey, our world's on a collision course with fate and destruction. If we wait long enough, the sun will burn out, our solar system will collapse. Life as we know it is going to come to an end. And if your life's work is to prolong the life of the planet for an extra generation, or maybe you're successful and it gets to two generations. Or maybe you've got such an amazing new idea that it lasts 10 more generations, 100, maybe even 1,000 more generations. But what's the point? You'll be dead and forgotten about long before those generations even arrive. And if you don't believe me that you'll be dead and forgotten about, well, then let me quote to you the lead paragraph in a Daily Telegraph article that I recently came across that was entitled, A fifth of British teenagers believe Sir Winston Churchill was a fictional character. While many think Sherlock Holmes, King Arthur, and Eleanor Rigby were real, a survey shows. Hey, give it a generation or two, and we'll all be pretty humbled by the fact that we'll be forgotten. Best case scenario, an archaeologist in the future may speculate whether or not you actually existed. And if you're noble and you say, well, I never did it for recognition, recognition, though, Trevor. I did it for the planet and for the future. Well, think about it. Why are you really doing it then? Because you're merely delaying the inevitable. You aren't saving anyone from anything. We're on a crash course. It'll either be the mountain or the road. I mean, good for you. You gave people, a future generation, to live and experience a meaningless existence before facing a nothinglessness of eternity. There's a saying that goes well with this, and and I love this saying. It's that you're rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. That's what we're doing. All we're doing is rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic as it slowly starts to lift its bow and sink beneath the waters. No, 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 play this song again. Let's make everything look nice and and, and just try to delay the inevitable reality that's looming. I mean, ask someone, what's your why? Why do we exist? What's our reason for existing? Why are we here? What gets you out of bed? Well, I'm here to help the needy and vulnerable. I had a conversation a couple of weeks ago with a friend of mine who's younger than me. He's in a Ph.D. program in MIT, so that's not the only difference between he and I, is that he's younger. But he was telling me it's, it's been a difficult adjustment for him because he said it feels like everyone around him is very antagonistic of his faith and Christian worldview. And he said it's also been interesting to watch everyone on that campus, seemingly everyone, celebrating days like Marx Day and Darwin Day and Nietzsche Day celebrating that we've just evolved to arrive here, we've, we've emerged from our need for God. No, we're celebrating the fact that we're on the other side of those false realities. They're celebrating that my origin has no significance and my future has no significance. They're celebrating that this is what we live in, life under the sun, the very thing that Ecclesiastes is writing about. And he said, you know, every time I bring up a science view or angle that's trying to push back on their worldview, they're so fast to respond to me. And I said, well, I don't have much answers for, like, how do you deal with people at MIT PhD programs about science? But I did encourage him. Then why don't you go after, rather than their science, go after their meaning and purpose. Poke them with the goad as the author, the preacher of Ecclesiastes is trying to do. Ask them this question. Ask them, why is our culture, modern culture, obsessed with self-esteem? Like, why have we changed our grading system for our children? Why do we give out participation awards to them at the end of the season? Well, don't misunderstand me. I have children. I affirm them constantly. I'm not questioning the need for that. I'm just observing there is an intellectual inconsistency in it all in our culture. Think about it. Our cultural obsession with self-esteem is intellectually inconsistent, If you have an origin that's insignificant, no God, no creative intent, just random chance, and your destiny is without significance, no reckoning day, no reward, no life to come, nothing, then why in the world are we so concerned about people feeling good about themselves and viewing their life as significant and really mattering? The same culture that's telling you how important you are also tells you that you're no more valuable or important, or you're not valuable or important at all because you're the result of accidental randomness and chance. You're just a massive lump of cells. There's no rational reason to say that you're more valuable than a rodent or a rock. And yet we're obsessed with people's self-esteem and not hurting their feelings. Think through the implications. Why would we then send aid to anyone in need? why would we then stand up against injustice in any form? If we've simply evolved to get here, and if it's survival of the fittest that advances us, then listen here, oh humanist, who wants to make the world a better place, for the greater good and advancement, then, of making the place better, stop slowing down to help weak people. If this is how we think, then this is how we ought to live whether it's AIDS orphans in Africa, or earthquake victims in Turkey and Syria, why get involved? For the good of humanity in our future, the train just needs to keep moving. No one would stand up in a lecture hall though to yell, stop helping others. But it's what's taught in those very same lecture halls that would lead us to that philosophical conclusion. You see, as a 21st century progressive society, our hearts betray us. They won't allow us to live the lives that the way that our minds tell us we ought to live them. To live this way, discarding the weak and allowing for societal progress in the process. It feels unhuman. We'd call it inhumane if you spoke up and yelled, stop helping those people. You see, our hearts betray us and betray the narrative that we're told to believe. The intellectual inconsistency is that you have to live as if human beings are significant when in reality, according to the worldview of life under the sun, you know that they are not at all significant, that we're just the byproduct of random chance who have an insignificant origin, who have a lifeless future that's meaningless, and therefore we wrestle with the tension of doesn't that mean that my life is without meaning as well. Author Timothy Keller, he says it this way. He says, if your origin is insignificant and your destiny is insignificant, then have the guts to admit that your life is insignificant. Either there is life above the sun and there is meaning, or there is no life except that which is under the sun and nothing means anything. Do you notice this is actually where the voice of Ecclesiastes, the preacher, is leading us. Look at verse 14 where he says, He says, I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and indeed, all of it is vanity. It's grasping for the, the wind. Remember, this is that Hebrew word, hevel. It's a gasp. That's what it means. It's, it's a puff of smoke that's here in an instant and gone in the next. It's a puff of smoke that, although it's there, it can't be grasped. It can't be held on to. Verse 15, what is crooked, he says, cannot be made straight, and what is lacking, it cannot be numbered. In another translation, it says, what is wrong can't be made right. He's saying by human wisdom under the sun. What is missing can't be recovered. He's saying the deeper he looked, the more broken and beyond repair and empty things were. And he says in the end, this just doesn't add up. This cannot be numbered. In other words, if you stare into the abyss long enough, you find that it stares back at you. So where did he go, the, the preacher in Ecclesiastes, from his depressed state of despair? Verse 16, I consumed or communed with my heart. The idea is that he was honest with himself, saying, look, I have obtained greatness and have gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge, and I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is grasping for the wind. Remember, Koheleth, as he calls himself, the voice of the preacher who's addressing humanity, he's saying here that he tried something else in addition to wisdom. What did he try? He says he tried madness and folly. Now, I don't think you're supposed to picture this guy stripping naked and then walking on all fours like a wild animal, Both these Hebrew words are only found in Ecclesiastes, and they are both almost exclusively found running together. They seemingly are communicating a single thought, and that's mindlessness. Mindlessness. I chose wisdom, and where did it drive him? To despair and depression. So I chose just to live mindlessly, but he said I also realized that that was grasping for the wind. Sure, wisdom is preferable to folly, to foolishness, But wisdom frustrated and depressed him. At least the fool is ignorant of the sorrow and emptiness of life. After all, ignorance is bliss, we say. Madness and folly is what we were describing just a moment ago when we said that there are people who choose to live lying to themselves as they hold on to an intellectually inconsistent view of the world that says that you have to live as if human beings are significant when in reality you know that they are not significant at all. What is madness in the worldview of life under the sun? Remember, void of a belief in eternity or God? What's madness in that worldview is to believe that it's true, that there's no significance in your origin, that there's no significance in your future, and therefore no significance in your life. And yet, to live as if this isn't true. It's living mindlessly in a logical manner, in an irrational way, Living, believing all of those things, but telling yourself every day that you are so very important and that your feelings and your self-esteem matter so very much. And so does that of others around you. At the end of it all, he says, verse 18, For in much wisdom is much grief, and he who increases knowledge, he increases sorrow. Again, the more that he knew, the more sorrowful and depressing it was. The more he looked at it, at reality, the more grievous and painful it was. The abyss he found staring right back at him. What you'll find is that our teacher and guide on our our journey to find the meaning of life, he's gonna turn away from these cold, harsh realities trying to find an escape. You find it at the beginning of chapter two, verse one, where it talks about him pursuing then pleasure. Wisdom brought him to his knees. If it's wisdom that doesn't involve a view of God or eternity, he found that life itself was meaningless. It's not surprising that he turned towards pleasure because it's really what all of humanity does, doesn't it? This is how we self-medicate. Look at the futility of life and and see despair, asking, well, what's the point? You see, you look at the futility of life and grief and sorrow are there to greet you, as he said in verse 18. Your best choice is to look away, to do your, your best to distract yourself and not think about it, because more thought equals more sorrow than no thought must be a little bit better, he says. This is what so many people choose to do. They don't want to think about reality realistically. In our home group this last week, someone in our home group was sharing about an interaction that they had uh, with a neighbor, and that as they interacted with the neighbor, and the neighbor mentioned something about death, and then the person from our church kind of leaned in and began to try to talk to them about an afterlife and, and confidence that maybe we have. As soon as the conversation went there, the person just threw up the wall and was like, absolutely not, can't go there, can't talk about this, can't handle this. This is how so much of our world lives. I'm not willing to pause and think about things. I don't want to think about if my, my origins are meaningless and if I believe my future is empty and void of any significance, then that therefore means that there's no point to my life. People don't want to slow down and feel those things. Now, the spoiler alert that I'll give you now that you'll find next week when we get there is that pleasure and parties couldn't fix or fill the emptiness that this man carries. So he will turn back to wisdom one final time. You find it in Ecclesiastes chapter two, and I want to read through what he says as he turns back to wisdom. He says, then I turn, verse 12, myself to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who succeeds the king? Only what was already done. Then I saw that wisdom is, is more excellent than folly. It excels folly, as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. The idea is he closes his eyes. Yet I myself perceived that the same event happens to them all. He's saying we all die. So I said in my heart, verse 15, chapter 2, As it happens to the fool, it also happens to me. And why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart, this is also so vanity. This is all empty. This is the puff of smoke that can't be grasped. For there is no more remembrance of the wise and of the fool forever. Since all that now is will be forgotten in the days to come. And how does a wise man die? He dies the same as a fool. Therefore, verse 17, I hated life. Because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me. For all is vanity and grasping at the wind. Then I hated all my labor, in which I toiled under the sun, because I must leave it to the man who will come after me. Okay, now take a breath. Just by way of a quick, lighthearted recap on this lovely spring morning, a Mother's Day no less, wisdom in a worldview that has no room for God or eternity, wisdom that is under the sun mentality... Verse 14 of chapter 1 says it is an empty pursuit that cannot provide real answers to life's hardest questions. Verse 15 tells you that it has its limitations. It can neither fix nor explain what's broken, that it just doesn't add up, he says. Verse 18, it's inseparable from grief and sorrow because you can't explain away your emptiness, your, your empty existence. Verse 16, it will push you into a corner where it demands that you choose wisdom or folly. Rational, logical wisdom is your choice or to think and live in an intellectually inconsistent manner where you know that your life and existence is utterly inconsequential but living just as if that isn't the case and telling yourself how very important you are. This is the bleak and escapable reality that the preacher is forcing all of us for a moment, grabbing us by the jaw to turn our heads to make us look at but against what feels like a bleak and seemingly hopeless backdrop, here is where I remind you that he is not the only preaching king from the line of David. There's not just a second one, but there is a greater one. And the gospel that Jesus, the greater preaching king from the line of David who came in the future, the gospel Jesus would preach in the Christian narrative and worldview that it presents would never request or require this kind of intellectual inconsistency. I love how John's gospel begins because it introduces Jesus in a very unique manner where in John chapter 1, verse 1, he says, in the beginning was the word, was the logos. In the beginning was the logos. and the word, the logos was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things are made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and darkness did not comprehend it. I love the, the, the plot twist. It's not just that the Logos was there with God in eternity past. But then it talks about him creating. But then it says in verse 14, And the Logos became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the Logos. It's a a Greek noun derived from a Greek verb that just means to say something significant. John's gospel then is telling us that Jesus is what heaven, Jesus is what God has to say to creation, to humanity. But there's more than just that in this word that's packed with meaning. You see, 500 years before Jesus arrived, there's an ancient Greek philosopher by the name of Heraclitus. And he was trying to answer the question that humanity had always been haunted by, the question of what is the meaning of life? The question of how do we make sense of it all? And his contribution to the age-old conversation and debate would be the adoption and use of the word logos as the philosophical term that would describe, be used to describe the key to unlocking and understanding all that we see happen in the world. As one article I read this week about ancient Greek philosophy defined logos this way, it said, it is the eternal and unchanging truth present from the beginning of time available to every individual who seeks it. And then many Greek philosophers would come after him, like Plato and Aristotle and Zeno, the father of the Stoics, who would also take a stab at defining the logos, the key to unlocking it all and understanding it all. And they would all present a principle, an external, unchanging truth, they said, outside of themselves that would give life significance. They would have their own logos. I mean, picture, it's like a caveman walking up to an iPhone and picking it up. He needs someone to explain to him its utility. He needs to know its logos, its reason for existence, or it turns into a paperweight. But if someone can show him the meaning behind it, the purpose, the utility of it, then he can begin to use it in a meaningful way. He can make sense of it. This is what we're doing with life. We're trying to engage with the world, and all of us are grappling like cavemen saying, what do we do with this? We're, we have it staring back at us saying, yes, what do you think of all of this? We're looking for the Lagos. The Stoics came along and said the detachment from external things and internal emotions and the sole possession of internal virtue. That was the Lagos, the key to unlocking and freeing humanity. Whereas Aristotle would come and say, yeah, virtue's great, but we also need to hang on to our health and to reach for external security that's found in wealth and relationships and power. That'll give your life significance. That's the logos we need that will unlock life's mysteries for us. Plato seemed determined to use desire and emotion, knowledge specifically, to drive societal reform, making life better for all. If only society, he'd say, was more enlightened and grew in knowledge, then there'd be harmony in the universe. Knowledge was the logos, the key to unlocking and freeing humanity. The argument didn't start with the Greek philosophers. It started long before them. They did, however, introduce this word logos as meaning the key of unlocking it all, of making sense of it all. And then Jesus, born into that Greek culture, an era of human history is introduced as just that. As the eternal transcendent logos sent from God to dwell among us. John's saying he's going to be the way that you'll understand the universe. He will be the key to unlocking its greatest mysteries. He is the one who can make sense of it all. He's the Logos, the eternal, unchanging truth present from the time of creation, available to every individual who seeks it. Again, quoting Timothy Keller, because I love how he commented on this. He said, John comes along dropping the bombshell of the ages and says, guess what, there really is a Logos to life. But it's not a truth brought by a person. It is a truth that is a person. The Logos is not an abstract principle. The Logos is not theorem. The Logos is not something you can find in a book. The Logos is a human being. God come to earth. The Logos became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory. And when you know this one, when you behold his glory when you serve this one and worship this one, you find your reason for life. And instead of everything becoming futility, everything becomes utility. You see, the opposite of futility is utility. Instead of nothing meaning anything at all, everything means everything. My friend, everything begins to make sense if Jesus is in fact the logos behind creation. Because if Jesus is in fact the Logos of life and existence, then everything within life and existence will reflect him in his nature. If that's true, then I know why spring comes after winter. Then I know why a seed can be planted in the ground and then spring up in newness of life. It's because they reflect the ultimate reality, the Logos, which is Jesus and his nature, and he brings life out of death then I have an answer. If this is true, for why we are driven as humanity to tidy and organize and live in an ordered system, we are the only thing under the sun that's driven to change our reality and improve our environment. I can tell you why that is, though. It's because we were made in the image of God who brings order out of disorder and chaos. And that is the God who, who John says didn't just create it all, but entered humanity in the form of Jesus. Listen, I have an answer for why we cry at the sight of tragedy or as we suffer loss and as we buried a loved one. It's because we were born into a broken system of sin, sickness, suffering, and death. But Jesus said there's life again. We could be born again and experience a life free from those experiences. If it's true that Jesus is truly the logos of our existence, then I get a glimpse into the world as he created and intended it to be before sin tarnished and splintered it. I get glimpses into the world that I was made for each time Jesus performed a miracle. Because his miracles were not the suspension of the natural order. They were the restoration of the natural order. Because God never intended and will only briefly allow pain, sickness, suffering, sorrow, hunger, death, and evil. Which means when I look at Jesus and see each of his miracles, they're not just meant to be a challenge to my mind. They're meant to be read as a promise to my heart that the world that you and I want is coming, where every tear is wiped away and every wrong is made right. Do you understand that either nothing means anything at all or everything means everything? And in an under the sun form of wisdom, you can take this moment right now of you seated here in this room. And you can zoom all the way out to see each decision you will make for the rest of your life, each person's life you will impact, the legacy that you will leave behind even, how much wealth you would acquire and even give away, maybe even see how many future generations will feel your life and impact. We can zoom all the way out to all of that and none of it matters because your origin is inconsequential, your future in eternity is inconsequential because there is none. And therefore, your life is of no consequence or significance. You're merely shuffling or straightening deck furniture on a sinking Titanic. It may look prettier, but it's a lost cause. In an under-the-sun form of wisdom, you cannot provide answers for life's biggest questions, and you're required to live your life in an intellectually inconsistent way, knowing that there's no point or purpose, but choosing to live as if there were anyways. The amazing thing is that Christianity does not ask for something so absurd. That for Christianity, it provides answers to our deepest of questions. Remember, please, please understand me that it's either that nothing means anything or everything means everything. So the Christian narrative and worldview never asks or requires for this kind of intellectual inconsistency. Because contrary to culture, your Bible does not tell you that everything revived is a result of randomness and chaos with no grand purpose or intent behind it or no grand purpose even being entrusted to it with no global moral standards or expectations about how we should steward our life and our resources. The Bible is in contrast to that telling you that you and I are here because a loving God wanted to bring you into the beauty of his love. And if that's too flowery for you, then consider this. A good reason for two people to have a child is not because they look at their relationship and say, a kid could fix this. A good reason for two people to have a child is that they look at each other and say, we love one another and have a loving union and home, and wouldn't it be great to invite others into our safe and secure loving space? And that is why God created us. Hear me, he did not create you either because he had a need or a lack. You were not his only shot at happiness. God created you to invite you into the beauty and harmony and love that already existed inside the triune Godhead. In our triune God, he said it this way. He said, let's then make man in our image according to our likeness. In Genesis 1.26, God expresses his value system in that moment when he uniquely created one entity in all of creation in his own image. And as an image bearer, you have unique and special value above all other created things, like a child that bears the name and resemblance of their parents and are cherished by them. You bear the image of God who loves you not for what you do, who values you. He, You are so valuable to him because of whose and what you are. You are made in his image. The identity of being an intrinsically valued image bearer must be the way that we come to see ourselves Because our past is not inconsequential. It also must be the way that we come to see every person around us. You see, our view of ourselves and others should radically be reshaped by the gospel. Which means that everything now means everything. Every human interaction, everything that seems mundane has value now because your origin had significance and because your future has a grand significance and because you're made in the image of God and so are those around you. I'm seen as valuable and loved without limit or requirement of merit of it. That's how God treats me and I ought to see others as equally valuable and choose to love them too. See, some theologians, they explain the image of God as us being the reflections of God. That we get to have little glimpses of the goodness and grace and love and beauty of God when we look at the lives of other people around us. This is what God expressed with his very next sentence after making man in his own image in the Garden of Eden. He communicated purpose and intent in your life. Yes, that you're an image bearer who would have a very unique relationship with him. But he also said, let them now have dominion over the rest of creation. And then he commanded them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the whole earth and subdue it. His command is really, make more good in the world. You are the image of God walking the earth. God is casting his shadow on the earth as you live and interact with others. Oh, let the world see how good our God is. That in contrast to a life under the sun where nothing means anything, a life with a confidence that there's more beyond us, life above the sun, beyond it, tells me that everything means everything. You see, in an under-the-sun form of wisdom, you can take this moment right now of you seated here, zoom all the way out, and none of it matters. Or if there's more than what's seen, if there's more above the sun, then you could zoom all the way back in all the way into as simple a thing as you engaging with your co-workers this week. All the way into you loving your neighbor today. All the way into you offering someone something as simple as a glass of water. And it matters for all of eternity. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 10, 42. And if you give even a cup of cold water to one of the least of these, my followers, you will surely be rewarded. It feels like an empty message that the preacher of Ecclesiastes brings to us because he forces us to look at the futility of life. But do you see that there's a new preacher who comes, a second one, who gives incredible meaning and purpose to life? He's the logos, the way, the key to us understanding all that is and life and reality, and the one who changes things from nothing meaning anything to absolutely every detail of your life means everything for all of eternity. Jesus, I'm so thankful that we aren't left with just this singular voice, this one voice that makes us look at a world with no significant origin, with no significant future. So thankful that there's more that speaks to us than just a voice that points us towards the emptiness and vanity, the futility of human life and existence. Jesus, it makes the gospel shine today. Jesus, it makes us appreciate it in a whole new way today. That You'd save us, you'd rescue us, you'd forgive us and reconcile us with yourself. But you now also give meaning to every moment of every day that even what feels or seems insignificant has significance for all eternity. God, these are hard things to consider. But gosh, against a bleak backdrop, Jesus, you shine. So Jesus, we thank you today. And I pray for anybody who's here, who's Jesus yet to accept you and turn your direction, to see you and embrace you as the Logos. The key to it all that in this moment that they would turn to you and say Jesus I need you I need you to forgive me I need you to give that kind of meaning and purpose to my life Jesus would you rescue me Jesus what a gift for us to be together And not just to look at what's broken in our world, but looking at what's good about our God. And so, God, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.